On this episode of the EMBO podcast, we speak with three new PIs. Xiaohan Chang at National Tsinghua University in Taiwan, Gitis Dudas at Vilnius University in Lithuania, and Hedvig Taman at the University of Tartu in Estonia. All three study, amongst other things, host-virus interactions. It's a timely topic, since COVID and flu season have most definitely arrived in the Northern Hemisphere. Their work ranges from the population genetics of vertebrate hosts and their pathogens, to the biology of spillover events, to the tiny arms races between bacteria and phage. Welcome to the EMBO Podcast. Xiaohan Chang started her lab at Taiwan's National Tsinghua University in 2019. Her group investigates how pathogens evolve, emerge, and spread through populations using genomics and mathematical modeling. Chang did her master's thesis on Drosophila population genetics at National Tsinghua University. It was then that she met her future supervisor, Daniel Hartle, from Harvard's Organismal and Evolutionary Biology Department. He visited Taiwan, he gave a talk in Taiwan, and I was lucky to have dinner with him. It was, there were like more than 10 people in that dinner, and I sat next to him. And my advisor told him that I was applying for a graduate school. And he asked me which programs I apply for. And I, I told him about the names of the universities I apply for. And he said, like, why didn't you apply for our program at Harvard? And I said, uh, I think that's too difficult <laughs> and, and, uh, I don't want to waste my money or something like that. And then he said like, Oh, send me your, your CV. Um, and then, so after that dinner, I sent him my CV and he told me that I was quite competitive and then I applied for Harvard, um, and got in. I mean, it's a lab with very broad, uh, uh interest in evolutionary biology and population and genetics, but you specifically went into, um, pathogen, um, genetics, mm. uh, population genetics, and uh, a lot on malaria. So how, how did you get involved in that topic? And so at that time, I actually started from working Drosophila population genetics. But at that time, I, we relied on the publicly available data. We didn't have like our like in-house data. And one day, Dan came to me and said, we have tons of malaria parasites data. Do you want to give it a try? And I said, yes, of course, because for me, um, at that time, back then, I, I know I want to do the analysis, but I didn't care as much like which organism it was. And so I, I got to know more and more about malaria and got more and more interested in pathogens. And that's how I decided to do a postdoc in epidemiology because I got interested in malaria and I studied its evolution, its patterns of selection. Um, but then I feel like I, if I want to understand pathogens well, I need to understand its epidemiology. And that's why I chose to do my postdoc in Department of Epidemiology with Caroline Bucky and Mark Lipsich there. So where did this ton of plasmodium uh, data come from at that time? Um, it's Dan's collaborator, Diane Worth. They collaborate with researchers in Senegal, Africa. They are affiliated with the Bro Institute in, in Boston. And, and that's one of the institutes that generate um, quite a lot of genomic data at that time. So you, you went through these, uh, these great labs with uh, fantastic mentors and you did super well. Oh, yes. And then you decided to 
return to to Taiwan. Um, yeah. So was uh, was that uh, motivated by a desire to to come home, or did you have a, an opportunity to start something new? What was the, the driving yeah. force? I, it's mainly my desire to go home, come home. Um, so before I went to Harvard, I, it's kind of I always saw that as a temporary thing. Like I knew I wanted to come back, although like during my years in Boston, eleven years actually. Um, I really enjoyed being there and in the end it was actually quite difficult for me to leave because I, I like that city. It's like my second hometown, but I still want to be close to, to my parents and I know they wouldn't move. <laughs> they didn't even visit me when I was in Boston. And also the, um, my husband is also a researcher and his family is the same. They're also quite local. They don't travel that much and we have a daughter and we want our daughter to be close to her grandparents. And we are both in academia. We've both found a job in National Tsinghua University. And so that's why we, we, we chose to come back. And this is also the university we graduated from, if you see that in my record. So we did our bachelor degree here together, and then we went to US together, and we came back to teach in our university together. Xiaohan Chang is part of the EMBO Global Investigator Network, which supports young group leaders in Chile, India, Singapore, and Taiwan. Global Investigator Network researchers receive financial support for four years for training and networking activities. I really appreciate the support from the EMBO Global Investigator Network. Especially this grant can be used to pay for some expenses that are not covered by the typical grants in Taiwan. And we just spend the money to, to go to the, uh, a lab retreat. And this was really helpful. Like it helped kind of connect people in the group together, which is really important for, for a successful research group. And the other thing is I used the childcare support. So I was able to bring my daughter when I visited my collaborator in the University of Cambridge. And because my daughter, he, she really doesn't want me to travel without her. Like she doesn't want me to do any like business travel without her. So having this support is really important because otherwise I might just give up some like important opportunities for my career development. So I really appreciate Ambo's support. In 2019, Xiaohan left Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health to start her own lab at National Tsinghua University in Taiwan. Her work on the modeling of how pathogens evolve, emerge, and spread through human populations would soon be more pertinent than ever. For COVID-19, I mainly constructed mathematical models and tried to study how different kinds of intervention strategies would help control the disease in Taiwan. And I used what I learned from malaria, like we constructed metapopulation model and combined the model with human mobility network to infer the spread of the disease. But th that's what I did, like mainly more like for policy making and try to model the impact of different control strategies. So one of the things you have uh, published on from that period is a topic that is still a very strong current discussion, at least in the public, which is the efficacy of mask usage. <laughs> I know. So what what did you conclude about that? I mean, mask usage can definitely help reduce the spread of the disease. But at that time, 
we didn't have vaccine, right? So it's like we were focusing on those um, social distancing, like other strategies. So at that time, actually, we, we did this super early. And at that time in like Europe or in the US, people still don't wear masks. But we know that in Asia, we, even like before COVID, we tend to wear masks when we are sick or when we're coughing. Or we some people do that regularly when they take public transportation, even if they are not sick. And so it's a really different like culture. But also because of that, I would think, oh, now I remember. So at that time, the government is in Taiwan is trying to increase the production rate of masks because they realize that it's not enough because people are trying to go to the pharmacy and buy that masks and we couldn't get enough masks. Um, so anyway, they are trying to increase the production rate. And I talked to a physician in CDC and he said like, how many, how many masks do we need? And, and that's how I started. Oh, maybe we can do some modeling about masks. That's the beginning. And then I work with my collaborator at the Broad Institute in the US. And although by then we have sufficient masks in Taiwan, but it's not the case in like US or other countries. So we try to model like if we have different like mask coverage, I mean, how the disease transmission would differ. SARS-CoV-2 is no longer spreading through a naive human population. Besides virogenetic variation and host somatic diversity, a third biological variable must now be factored into COVID-19 modeling, immunological memory to previous infectious strains and vaccine variants. Xiaohan and her lab are turning their attention to this problem. I'm very interested in understanding how previous circulating strains influence our immune responses, and that would influence whether strain can be successful in the future or not. It really depends on the population and the previous infections. So even if the same virus strain goes to different countries because of the difference in their previous exposure, you know, you can think about that. It's like transmissibility will be different in different settings. And now we know more and more about this. So hopefully <laughs> in the future we can we can know better about these. It's the perennial concern with with influenza and and what in immunology we call the the original sin um, mm, scenario, mm, mm, mm. which now landed on COVID as well. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So and there will be more and more serology data in the future. I mean, the technology has already you know improved a lot in recent years. So I'm quite excited about that field, although I'm certainly not that familiar with immunology, <laughs> but I'm interested in learning more on that in the future. My feeling for the serological side of it is that it's basically um, still just an ELISA that sometimes the plates get smaller. And that means uh, that the amount of information uh, you can get is is limited both in the terms in terms of the total uh, just uh, amount of reactivities you can look at, but also how much fine tuning you can see in the immune response. I mean, do you think the serological tools are up to the genomic task of tracking um, of finely tracking pathogen lineages? Mm -hmm. I think we are not there yet, but I'm really not the expert in this field, but. I went to University of Cambridge in UK this summer and I started hearing that now people do more and more like multiplex serology, like they can test for different pathogens at the same time. 
And by that assay, you can also, so for example, a lot of flavy viruses, they have cross immunity. And so if you only, if your test is only test for one path, like one flavy virus, the response might actually <laughs> be generated by another virus. But if we put all the viruses in, then you can consider all these factors. And people who are good at mathematical modeling can kind of take this more like detailed information and get a better estimation. But this is something I actually want to, this is like in my to-do list and I really want to know more about these assays. And I just heard that this field has like rapidly growing. And so I look forward to like seeing more data in the future. And I also consider applying that to our samples in Taiwan. One thing that I think has a, also good potential is the protein structure simulations because so from genotype to phenotype is still far away from each other. But if we can put like some protein structure simulations in between, hopefully it will make it easier from like predicting phenotype from the genotype in the future. And that's one thing I'm trying to understand more and try to integrate to my research. No, 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 these. Are you using AlphaFold? No, we are not using AlphaFold. I think AlphaFold is not Okay, I'm not the expert for this, yeah. but as far as I know, uh, and also my students tried that, um, AlphaFold is more for like, not for like a small change. So if we just change one mutation, one amino acid in the structure, it doesn't really make a difference if we use AlphaFold. So we are trying to use more like molecular dynamic simulation tools. And there are like experts in my department. So <laughs> we are still trying, but yeah, that's something I'm trying to learn. I, I always like to learn new things. So, so it makes me excited, even though that's not something I'm very good at already, but I'm keen to like learn and integrate that to my research. When the COVID-19 pandemic began, Gitis Dudas already had extensive experience tracking viral spread in real world outbreaks. Dudas studied biology at the University of Edinburgh, where he also got his PhD. He then did a postdoc at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center in Seattle with Trevor Bedford and worked as a consultant for several organizations, including the Scripps and the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub. In 2021, Dudas established his lab at Vilnius University's Life Sciences Center in Lithuania, where his group works on the evolution and ecology of RNA viruses. You were in an interesting position of helping to coordinate the, the local response during the pandemic, right? So you were a basic researcher, background in biology, and suddenly now you're doing biology under fire. <laughs> what was that like? So that wasn't my first contact with that sort of infectious disease control. Essentially, my former field, so genomic epidemiology, where uh, we use viral sequences to essentially reconstruct the history of a given infectious disease outbreak. That entire field was born in a single uh, office at the University of Oxford, you know, uh, 30, 40 years ago. And so since then, from this largely academic exercise, it's been slowly diffusing out into the public sphere. So these sorts of uh, approaches started getting applied essentially at scale during my PhD. So a lot of my PhD work was on the Ebola virus epidemic in West Africa in 2013 and 2016, where you know, finally we were at a stage where sequencing was sufficiently cheap 
where you could use viral genomes to understand the outbreak as it was going on. And it was even used um, in later stages of the epidemic to actually track individual transmission chains because the, so the virus population had collapsed. All of the surviving lineages were extremely distinct. And the WHO was basically using sequencing to confirm whether a given new case that cropped up in a new location belonged to a known transmission chain or one that sort of slipped under the radar. Um, so, so in that sense, coordinating the, the response in Lithuania, and again, it's not strictly coordinating the, the response per se, it's coordinating the surveillance efforts. And I would say that that's been hugely successful. So not only did we um, discover an entirely new lineage, you know, even though uh, many richer states in Western Europe uh, were first to sequence it, but we actually detected it, understood what it was, and were able to coordinate a huge effort together with African scientists to basically describe how this lineage likely uh, originated somewhere in Central Africa and then spread to Lithuania via largely Francophone European countries. Um, and then another project coming out of the surveillance efforts that's still ongoing is, so Lithuania is one of the, I think, top five mink fur producers in Europe. And obviously when the pandemic happened, we sort of knew always that any mustelid, so, you know, ferrets and related animals are quite susceptible to human uh, respiratory pathogens. That was also the case with SARS-CoV-2. And basically, with our human side surveillance in Lithuania, we were able to detect multiple spillover events of lineages that were very clearly circulating in Lithuanian mink farms for up to a year at a time. And similar things have been reported in Poland. So that's an ongoing project where I was very happy to be able to actually take this mostly academic exercise of, you know, doing phylogenetics on viruses uh, to then actually go back and say some things that were quite crucial to the way that we respond to the virus. And actually, the state food and veterinary services ended up doing a sort of widespread surveillance of the mink farms and actually confirmed that, yes, there were multiple instances of these lineages circulating in mink which, you know, again, alters the, the way that we respond. And between your work with Ebola virus and, and now, so between, for example, 2015, 2014, has there been a big change technologically in what you're able to do in terms of surveillance? Yes, I, I would say that, uh, yeah, around 2014, I guess the largest um, change has been the development of uh, tiled amplicon sequencing. Um, so whenever we have an outbreak of a virus or actually a bacterium, just about anything, there's usually quite low genetic diversity, which means that you can design primers to tile the entire genome of the pathogen, and that reduces the costs of sequencing by a lot. The alternatives being sort of uh, target capture-based uh, approaches, which actually end up being quite expensive. So the fact that surveillance ended up becoming so cheap I think was the ultimate deciding factor. So just as a comparison, um, when I was doing the uh, Ebola work there, we were extremely happy to have uh, about 1,600 complete Ebola virus genomes um, across the three most affected countries of so Sierra Leone, Guinea, Liberia, uh, which represented about 5% of the cases. For SARS-CoV-2, last I checked, we have over 15 million 
complete viral genomes from all over the world. Granted, it doesn't cover the same proportion of the cases that were sequenced, but I, I would say that, you know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, uh, it would have been unimaginable to have such fast volumes of viral sequence data, especially keeping in mind that many of the countries which we do not associate with particularly strong genomic surveillance, for example, Lithuania, have a very strong representation on the databases. So I, I would say that essentially the reducing costs of sequencing have, have led to this deluge of data that now on the methodological side, we're starting to struggle of what, what to do with, with this amount of data. One disappointing aspect here, at least in, in Portugal, and I know speaking to colleagues in other countries, was that although we were able to respond quite quickly in terms of academic labs collaborating with public health authorities and with hospitals and setting up a surveillance or, simp or simply diagnostic capacity, um, there was a sense here that when, for example, when the monkeypox threat uh, surfaced, that it was back to square one, not scientifically, not technically, but in terms of the regulatory uh, aspects, the interactions, being able to quickly just help a hospital lab set up a PCR <laughs> diagnostic, for example. In Lithuania, is it the case that things have reset at a different level? Would you say that we've learned something um, in terms of the way science uh, and, and policy interact with the pandemic in Lithuania? That is a very, very good question that would probably actually require you know several episodes to to truly disentangle. Yes, I, I think there's always an issue of whenever there's a public health threat that emerges, particularly of the scale of the pandemic. One of the issues is that everything has to be done from scratch, right? Scientists have been warning people about pandemics for decades. Many Asian countries were much better prepared because they already uh, faced, you know, the the first uh, SARS coronavirus. But on the whole, the the sort of institutional memory is incredibly short. So whenever we, whenever a threat arises, we sort of deal with it with essentially duct tape frequently. And then after it's done, I've certainly not heard of any sort of review process happening internally in the Lithuanian government to sort of discuss, you know, that this pandemic isn't the last one, there will be future threats. What have we done right? What could have been done better? Uh, so those sorts of things don't exist. What is happening overall, and I would say across the entire world, is as sequencing continues to become cheaper, there's now at least fairly good sequencing infrastructure available in most countries. Uh, and, you know, if it isn't, let's say, Illumina machines that are pretty good for viruses, then at least many places can afford an Oxford Nanopore Technologies Minion. Um, so the, the footprint is kind of low. So I think from that perspective, from having surveillance just about everywhere at an affordable cost already helps us a whole lot just to identify threats early. And then hopefully with enough of a memory of you know, what damage the pandemic has done versus perhaps considering uh, a countrywide shutdown if a new threat emerges and comparing those costs. 
I would hope that we are substantially better prepared for the next pandemic. But I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there will be uh, the same mistakes happening. To come back to the science, um, so you, you were mentioning surveillance of ongoing threats and, and our increasing capability to, to sequence and, and analyze um, the information. But uh, focus of your work is, is more forward-looking, which is to predict new zoonotic risks, right? So what, what is the handle you have on what is an immense problem of an open-ended universe of potential pathogens? Yeah, so for that, I like to refer to WHO's 2018 document on which diseases are insufficiently researched. And next to a number of fairly familiar pathogens is also uh, something that's called disease X. And, and disease X is basically the WHO's invitation of, well, let's not think just about these known threats, but let's think about entire virus groups that we know might be predisposed uh, to causing issues in humans or many of the diseases on the WHO's list are actually diseases that mostly affect people's livelihoods. So with that in mind, pretty much since my very first scientific paper that got published on the evolution of influenza B virus, I fell in love with the virus group that uh, it's a part of. So this is a group called the Orthomyxoviridae. Um, so influenza is part of it. There's, um, if, if you farm salmon, uh, there's infectious salmon anemia that might be familiar to you. And Recent metagenomic surveys have clearly painted this picture that, yes, there's a lot of viruses that are related to influenza, that are related to infectious salmon anemia, um, but there's also a much, much greater diversity of these viruses that are found in arthropods. And uh, in, in fact, some of these have been detected early on because they were uh, discovered to be infecting vertebrates. So a lot of them infect uh, seabirds. I guess the most recent example would be bourbon virus, which um, I think caused the death in the US a couple of years ago. And so very clearly this group contains members that are able to cause disease in vertebrates to some extent. And so my current goal is to better understand what is the distribution of risk posed by these orthomyxoviridae viruses that are found on the arthropod side and what's associated with it. And one of the more obvious targets for investigation would be the surface proteins. So viral surface proteins have a whole variety of functions, but usually they, at the very least, attach to the host receptor uh, of the cell. So that ends up determining what hosts it's able to infect and usually which tissues. So basically it's host and tissue tropism. And then there's some additional functions like escaping from, from the endosomes, etc. So basically if we can survey what's the ability of these metagenomically discovered orthomyxoviruses in arthropods, what's their ability to enter vertebrate cells, at least we then have some idea of what the risks may be. Uh, it's, it's by no means sort of predicting the next pandemic, but it is adding to our understanding of what are the things associated with increased risk to uh, enter vertebrate populations. Is this, is this something where you see that AI might come to play a big role in? Yes, uh, in, in many ways. Firstly, 
there's been recent advances, uh, obviously with AlphaFold, but there is a team of my colleagues who developed a machine learning method to detect novel RNA-dependent RNA polymerases in metagenomic data. And no surprise, they discover essentially entirely new families, if not orders, of viruses that have slipped under our radar because the vast majority of discoveries that we do are based on primary sequence similarity. So usually take a sequence and then uh, that you, you know, found in a mosquito, for example, and then you compare it to a database. And that similarity is essentially the limit of your uh, ability to say what that sequence is. There's a couple of ways to extend that. Uh, and machine learning is one of the ways in which those sort of similarities can be generalized. And so uh, machine learning can definitely help us there, essentially fishing stuff out of what we call the viral dark matter. And then the other obvious thing is alpha fold and just being able to fold protein structures using uh, just the individual sequences. It's not perfect at this point by any means, especially since some of the surface proteins that I'm focusing on right now, called GP64, that are used by this one specific clade of orthomyxoviruses seem to be ridiculously diverged. Um, so they're kind of closely related in their RNA-dependent RNA polymerase. For whatever reason, their surface proteins are ridiculously diverged and barely recognizable as such, especially by primary sequence similarity. So AlphaFold here still kind of fails because it needs close relatives of the sequence that you're interested in folding to be able to fold it correctly because it uses some coevolutionary signals. So yeah, AlphaFold definitely has the potential to change things, but the reliance on homologous sequences is for the time being sort of an Achilles heel when it comes to my research. My suspicion based on essentially running genomic epidemiology analyses like the ones you um, see done on SARS coronavirus 2 seem to indicate that there's this one particular orthomyxovirus that's so far been discovered in mosquitoes only. There's indications that it might be infecting a vertebrate host at some point. So this virus called Wuhan mosquito virus 6, very unimaginative name, unfortunately, um, seems to migrate incredibly fast. Um, so we see that the viruses collected around the perimeter of the Pacific Ocean have shared a common ancestor within the last 20 years or so. And then even viruses that eventually are found in Australia and California have been in contact within the last eight years or so. And mosquitoes are not thought to travel very far. They can be moved around by other means, but then we also see what look like diversifying selection focused uniquely on the surface protein GP64, which again, insects don't really have immune systems that can operate on the same timescales as virus evolution. And the only system that we are aware of that can do that is our very own antibody-based adaptive immune response that can essentially generate a response to just about any protein in a matter of two weeks. And so um, we suspect that this virus is able to infect vertebrates. And by checking whether this GP64 of one mosquito virus 6 can enter vertebrate cells, uh, we're hoping to get confirmation that yes, it can, and that therefore, if we go out and start catching, we suspect the vertebrate host is birds, if we start catching 
a bunch of birds that will at least be sure that the virus can infect them rather than sort of starting these wide seroprevalence studies based on this sort of genomic epi hunch. Um, I want to do a quick jump here because looking at the things you're interested in, um, it stands out that there's just one really DNA virus in the bunch, This uh, which one that I'm not familiar with. So could you uh, tell us a bit of why anelloviruses are interesting to you? Yeah. So, okay. So anelloviruses are kind of interesting, but only in terms of how much of a pain they are to work with. Um, so anelloviruses, for those who are unfamiliar, are these small circular DNA viruses that basically each of us have. We're essentially all infected with them and they don't seem to be causing any sort of disease. So uh, I, I've been contacted by uh, colleagues of mine from the Ebola days who went on to work for Ring Therapeutics, which is a gene therapy company that essentially hopes to adapt these uh, viruses that seem to persist within our bodies without any obvious immune response from the host to obviously adapt such a viral system for gene therapy for obvious reasons. Uh, and yeah, anelloviruses, if, if I could help it, I probably wouldn't be working on DNA viruses or actually any virus that recombines simply because the sorts of analyses that we can do on them uh, become that much more difficult. The moment there's recombination, your phylogenetic tree is meaningless because phylogenetic trees are fundamentally a model of clonal evolution. And so I had to get very creative in analyzing the anelovirus data. And the other fascinating thing about them is they recombine like crazy. You can you can take sequences that are 80% identical at the nucleotide level, and there's just loads and loads of recombination that you see in them. And sometimes the diversity is such that you start even wondering if if you're if what you're seeing is true homology. Truly a fascinating system and one that I'd rather not work with professionally. Dudas's homepage at evogitis.github.io has many great resources, including videos, blog posts, papers, and preprints. But if I'm being totally honest, what immediately jumps out is this line on his CV page. Quote, One of my proudest achievements in Edinburgh has been the discovery of Die Hard Dracula. Could you tell us a bit about Die Hard Dracula? Die Hard Dracula, oh my god, yes. So I'm an absolute fan of terrible films. I'm sure by now people have heard of The Room, Tommy Wiseau's quote-unquote masterpiece uh, that essentially is now part of popular culture with uh, you know uh, James Franco essentially filming a, a film called um, Disaster Artist based on a book by someone who was on set with Tommy Wiseau during the filming of The Room. And that sort of template for what a terrible film is where a single person takes on numerous roles, you know, director, producer, uh, main star, etc., with a lot of hopes uh, and a lot of uh, dreams, hoping for it to become, well, in the case of The Room, literally the next talented Mr. Ripley, and for it to flop so bad, it, it's truly a masterpiece of how to do things terribly. And I still say that one of the proudest achievements of my PhD is stumbling upon Die Hard Dracula, which is essentially the same thing uh, where I believe a Czech stuntman thought that he could make a film and ended up directing, producing it, uh, maybe even starring in it 
where for some inexplicable reason there's three different actors playing Dracula. None of the plot makes any sense, but it is deeply, deeply enjoyable. So if anyone has a chance uh, to get Die Hard Dracula, please do. It's got a rating of 2.0 on IMDb, I believe. <laughs> do you know the Rotten Tomatoes rating of it? I'm not even sure it has one. It's very obscure. Let us now adjust the host scale by several orders of magnitude until we are in the realm of the gram-negative Pseudomonas. Hedvig Taman studied biology at the University of Tartu, Estonia, where she also did her PhD. She then moved to Brussels for a postdoc at Université Libre de Bruxelles. Taman recently returned to the University of Tartu to start her own lab. This year, she received an ERC grant to study molecular arms races between phage and bacteria. Taman has for many years investigated bacterial toxin antitoxin systems, but not the textbook cases where they promote plasmid maintenance in a microbial version of the Mexican standoff. These toxin antitoxin systems are chromosomal. On plasmids, it's very clear what they need to do, really. They maintain the plasmid. If the entity is lost, antitoxin is degraded, toxin is there, kills the cell or doesn't let it grow, so it's outcompeted from the population. For the chromosomal one, it's much more difficult to understand what's it for because you can't lose a chromosome for one. So basically, it is there are several possibilities uh, why these uh, toxin-antitoxin systems actually are maintained in the chromosome. And there are several in one chromosome. There are 15 in the bacterium that I work with, Pseudomonas putida, and there have been several ideas and one of them is then the this phage defense. And as we are now working on these 13, 15 toxin-antitoxin systems in Pseudomonas putida chromosome, we don't really know what they do because we've tested all kinds of other stuff. So now we decided to also look for whether or not they defend against the attack from bacterial viruses. In past, during my PhD, we still had an mRNA toxin it had a weird side effect. A bit of a thing we couldn't uh, pinpoint down why is it there was that it really created this ribosome as, uh, biogenesis defect. And we still don't actually know why and why the ribosome biogenesis defect, but we've moved on from that now just to see whether or not these uh, toxin-antitoxin systems in general are important for the bacterium or they're just like selfish entities because... They have this kind of uh, innate ability to keep themselves where they are because of the toxicity. But yes, there are some toxins that are mRNAs, some that target gyrases, DNA gyrases. There are some that um, basically it's very often still this protein production uh, shutdown or, or inhibition that they do, but the mechanisms can be different. So this is um, part of, I guess, of, of what you termed astringent response in, in bacteria? Yes. So into my story, the astringent response comes in a bit by accident, but a bit because toxin-antitoxin systems in history were proposed to also contribute to the persistence of bacteria. So basically, bacteria turning into dormant cells and surviving because of that. And it was proposed that they kind of work in together with each other to create this kind of a phenotype. 
uh, it has been now revisited and it does not seem to be the case for the toxin antitoxin systems. But stringent response itself is actually what does induce this kind of a dormancy because it does turn the cells from growth to a more dormant state, to a stress survival state. And that's how I became to study the stringent response. And so, yes, my topic right now is to see, I also included the phages, so to see how toxin antitoxin systems are involved with phages, how the stringent response is involved with phages. I don't consider the toxin antitoxin systems and the stringent response to be involved with each other that strongly. It's just two sides of the research that I'm into right now. If we come back to the phage issue in this, um, so I, I realize it's the beginning of the project in this in many ways, but what is your model for how the stringent response would affect uh, phage infection? So it's quite easy to think that if a stringent response is activated and protein production is turned down, then its bacteria produce less phages. It's also interesting to think because in nature or in the environment, bacteria are usually in a stressed state. They're not fast growing or anything like that. So they probably have quite a... The stringent response might be activated. So the phages that actually in the nature, in like natural conditions, can infect bacteria, have to somehow overcome this issue. So my real interest in it is really how phages can actually infect these dormant bacteria and how this kind of arms race works with the bacterial very central system that bacteria can't really change too much. And then phages that can actually come and manipulate maybe with this response. I don't know, but I hope that there is something in there. Well, in, in a way, it's analogous to, to mammalian sickness responses of just slowing, slowing down and sleepiness and reduced activity and yeah. reduced feeding behavior, I guess, would be the... Yes, yes. It's basically, I mean, for bacteria, what I think is not that it becomes like that when it gets the infected with the phage, I'm more likely think that in general, a bacterium in nature doesn't have too much food, doesn't have, you know, it's in like a nutritional stress and stringent response usually is activated mainly by different nutritional stresses, uh, amino acid deficiency or things like that. So I would think it's more like if, if we are stressed in a way that you know, we don't have food. We don't really want to walk. <laughs> I don't know. So, so you say there's no direct evidence for viral recognition in triggering um, a stringent response in bacteria. I don't know yet. There might be, but I I would think that triggering a stringent response is not very beneficial for the phage itself. If we would think that phages think or have any kind of a directed move ideas, but. Uh, it's more likely that the stringent response is actually, they don't want to turn it on. They want to turn it rather off or they don't want to kill the cell with the cell just dying. They want to kill the cell once the phages are produced so that they can exit the bacterium and infect new ones. So I, I would rather think it's not really initiating the stringent response. It's rather turning it off. Yeah, that was a, so I had a friend who was a, 
much older virologist, and he was always saying that viruses will know a lot more about the immune system than scientists ever will. It's the sign that you're onto something important when the pathogen is bothering to interfere with it directly. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yes, well, viruses knowing things is, uh, is a completely different <laughs> yeah. issue. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a very anthropomorphic idea. But yes. No, but the main clue there was if it's really important, just given time and natural yes. selection, you will find... A exactly, exactly. That's what I'm trying to do is really look from the phage how to, how to get over this kind of a stress response. Because although the bacteria I work with, it's Pseudomonas putidae, it's an environmental bacterium, you know, more likely to be used in bioremediation or biotechnology productions. So we want to keep it more strong and not reduce its viability. I still hope to learn from that bacterium how phages interact with the stringent response and possibly, you know, get ideas how we could do the same uh, even regards to pathogen and then how to shut down this stringent response that actually helps bacteria survive to increase the efficiency of antimicrobials. So you're saying that the stringent response is a component of antibiotic resistance? In my mind, it is, yes, because as it turns up, it makes bacteria grow slower. It takes them more time to die, basically, in like a very general speaking. So if it takes more time to die, it has more time to gather different mutations or things that can give it actually resistance. So basically, stringent response make them more tolerant to antimicrobials. This higher tolerance help them survive longer, create resistance. And then when the resistance is there, you know, it will just spread around. So if we can stop the creation of the resistance, I think we might be onto something to reduce the spread of uh, antimicrobial resistance. That's interesting because at the same time you would be making them, I mean, just by what you were discussing now, you would be making them both more susceptible to antimicrobials and more susceptible to phage, which is, of course, coming back as a big therapeutic option. Yes, yes, it's coming back very strongly. I still feel it has a lot more work to be done towards it. And I struggle to really believe that we can use this kind of changing and evolving phages against bacteria during infections in a general manner. I think there are good options to be used if it's the last option. But I think this evolving of phages is kind of, it can be the downfall because phages might, it's just too many things changing in one system that uh, would make it easy or safe to use. I think, I think, I think the safety issues are definitely a big concern. A self-described nature girl, Taman studied biology in university, where one course drew her into microbiology. I had a bacterial genetics practical course. I failed miserably in all the exercises, but I very much liked it. And I think the um, supervisors of the course also saw that I liked it. And maybe they didn't see me failing all the time, because I did, but, you know. Anyways... They invited me to join their lab after that. It was second year of bachelor's. So in Estonia, we go to do practical work in the labs already as undergrads. And I joined that lab. First of all, I worked on 
a two component system, nothing to do with toxin antitoxin systems or anything. But then after finishing my bachelor's of three years, it didn't seem I could do anything really with just that degree. So I went on to master's and I'm kind of a lazy person. So I just stayed in the same lab and started studying toxin antitoxin systems because during my work, it was an accidentally another kind of a research direction that came up. And after my master's, I did think whether or not to do a PhD, but I had so many unanswered questions now coming to this toxin antitoxin systems that I started studying that I wanted to get those answers. And it just led on to me doing a PhD uh, in toxin antitoxin systems. I had a collaboration in Belgium where I met my future postdoc PI. So it's kind of all connected in a very logical and accidental uh, kind of a way at the same time. So throughout this um, bachelor's, master's and PhD, you you worked with the same supervisor with Dr. Horik. That- yes, yeah. yes. Yes. So what did you what did you pick up from her about supervising? Because clearly it, it worked very well. I mean, you guys published an, an amazing amount of work and you worked with her from a very early stage in your career. What, yes. what did you learn about being a supervisor? I actually work side by side with her like now as well. And I think we just click very well. I think we work together very well. We're very similar in our approaches to science, in our approaches to how supervising should be. So I never had any issues. And yeah, I think what I learned from her is just being involved and not, if you have an idea, don't try to first formulate a big picture out of it and then tell it to your students, but just try to formulate that picture together with the students. And I think that works. It's just taking students really as equals. And of course, if needed, you have to be the supervisor. You have to be the stronger voice and you have to put your foot down. But in an everyday life, when you really work every day, every single day together and you see each other every day, it's just about the communication and sharing your ideas and your thoughts and picking up the ideas and the thoughts of the other people. So I, I would imagine that my supervising does not suit everyone because I always try to, like, even from the undergrad uh, state, I try to give options to the student on what they should do or want to do. And sometimes I think at that stage, students might apply or take better just like, you should do this and then the reason. But... Um, Anyways, I had two undergrads last year and now they both continued with me with their master's, so I did something right. After her PhD in Tartum, Taman moved to Brussels for a postdoc. As she told me, quote, I went for two years. I stayed for five years. When you were doing your postdoc in Brussels, yeah. was it always your intention to come home, to, to return to, to Estonia? Yes and no. When I went, it was very much my intention. I always thought I have no reason I need to stay for too long. I just go there, do my postdoc that I'm required, basically required to do. Because here, as we have such a narrow research field, basically everyone is expected to do 
a foreign postdoc if they want to do any kind of a research in Estonia. And I think in the very end of my postdoc, I started considering not coming back. I had decided to leave my postdoc lab because I'd been there for five years. I think it's enough. I mean, I want to say it's not too much, but I think it's exactly enough to, this sounds very selfish, to get everything I need from there. So basically, I felt I was in a position where I could do something on my own. In practical terms, in, for you to start a lab, it's been a great time because you, you had the MO installation grant and now the ERC. Con, con, congratulations. So Thank you. You must have at least some tranquility to, to focus on the science for a while. Uh, yes, yes. In all honesty, I'm we are writing a consortium grant right now. So it's the end day. So it's very hectic right now. So I can't say that I'm right now very calm and, and peaceful. But yes, to just to start, uh, I came back with an Estonian returning researcher grant, which basically is, you know, it paid my salary and it allowed me to start something. And uh, and then I got the EMBO installation grant that really helps to not just to set up the lab and the funds for that, but it also, it gives so much possibilities for networking. So yes, I really appreciate those opportunities because in my very core, I'm a shy person and I don't reach out myself. So giving this kind of an opportunity, which makes it easier to reach out and easier to interact with people, it's very important for me. And I think this is a very big asset for my group or for me as a PI growing to be a better PI. So I... I hope I got this right because I ran one of your interviews through Google Translate because it was an Estonian. So hopefully it did not get completely mangled. Hopefully, and then translate like AlphaFold is a lot better <laughs> than it was when it started. But one of the things, uh, if translate didn't mangle it, that was in there that one of your concerns was a bit in, in, in terms of now not being too isolated when you, when you return to, to Estonia. But you said that you would also like to focus on building a, a local network with uh, not just within Estonia, but within the surrounding countries. How's that going? Uh, yes, um, I think the translation did it more or less uh, justice. So we did discuss in that on that interview, if I remember correctly, the interview, the possibilities of becoming an international lab in Estonia. The problem is that we're far off. If you look at the map, we're not that far off. But if you think of the connections, we just have 1.3 million people. So all these plane connections, they just don't make that much sense because there's not that many people coming in here or going out of here. So all the flights and everything, it will, it will almost always be a connecting flight. So it always takes a day to go somewhere and a day to come back. In that sense, that was kind of our concern. And our idea to solving this was building up a local network of people from Latvia or Lithuania who are much more easily accessible. So people would come here easier for a PhD or for a postdoc because they have a possibility to visit home because I know it's important to visit home. I was a postdoc during COVID times. <laughs> so, um, so basically that was the idea. And it's been going pretty well, actually. So if we take 
Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia as well. And then we just add Poland in there as well. So I've had many connections with people from Poland. I just visited a lab in Krakow. Um, and I have had interactions with people from Vilnius, Giti Studas, who was, uh, in the same year. Uh, we met and, and I'm going back to Vilnius in October. So basically, I hope that it will turn out very well and that I will find, I mean, I don't use them only to find people to join my lab, but I do wish that my lab was not only made up of Estonian researchers, not to bring down Estonian research. They're good, they're professional, everything is good, but I think all groups need a different perspective. So everyone needs someone from the outside to give that something special. Lithuania and Estonia are part of EMBO's Increasing Participation Initiative, a funding and support scheme for life scientists at all career stages in 11 countries. It includes support for applications to EMBO programs, publication at EMBO press journals, attendance at EMBO events, and more. To learn about the benefits, eligibility, and application processes for EMBO's installation grants, Global Investigator Network, and the Increasing Participation Initiative, visit embo.org. Thank you for listening to the EMBO podcast.